No doubt you are familiar with the lyrics. Perhaps uh, if I was to impose on you, you could even sing them. I will not do that, but it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap, hap, happiest season of all. Right. Uh, that's what we're told. Those are the lyrics. It's uh, usually set to a catchy little tune, and no few crooners have sung it through the years. Here's my question. Is it true? Is it true for everyone all the time? It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap, hap, happiest season of all. Is that actually true for everyone all the time? An interesting exercise you could do when you get home would be to do a search on the internet for sad Christmas songs. And there are a lot of them. Let me just read you just a few. The, the titles. Blue Christmas, Christmas, baby, please come home. I'll be home for Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. I think there's actually one, have yourself a melancholy uh, Christmas, in fact. Um, why is it that we sing these so readily? Why is it that year after year after year, New versions of those songs and spins in that new new versions in that genre, new entries in that genre keep coming out. What? Why is that? Why is that? If uh, you don't want to do the search on the internet, uh, perhaps you can just look at my news feed from just the last few weeks. Here's a few things that came in: nine apps to help you deal with holiday stress. Five ways to defeat loneliness at Christmas. What grieving people wish you knew at Christmas. Is it the hap -hap happiest season of all? Is it the most wonderful time of the year for everyone all the time? No. No. You see, it's very possible to have a heavy heart during the holidays. And you know what? That's okay. If that's where you are this morning, that's okay. Just go ahead and stop pretending for the rest of us. It would do us well. It's okay to have a heavy heart during the holidays because you know what Christmas never promised? You know what Jesus never promised the certainty of happiness. He brings to us with Christmas, with the incarnation, the possibility of something much better, joy. Joy, which is much deeper and much richer than happiness. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Isaiah. This is the fourth of our four uh, in this little series, uh, Advent Through the Eyes of Isaiah. We are in Isaiah 35. If you're trying to find that, uh, well, first off, it's on the screen if you don't need to find it, but I mean, if, if you'd prefer, uh, then it's, it's one of those larger books in the Old Testament. As I've been saying the last few weeks, it's to the right of the Psalms, the very heart of the Bible, the very heart of the Scriptures. 
Isaiah is one of those major prophets, meaning he just wrote more. Uh, and that's where we are. Isaiah chapter 35, the whole chapter, but it's only 10 verses, so that's not so tough. Uh, Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunts of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, these words were written a long time ago of you. A long time before the incarnation before that first nativity. We ask that you would please help us to grapple with that which is being promised, that which is being assured, that which has come and is coming. The scope of it, the surety of it, we ask that we would do more, though, than just grasp it with our minds. We ask that you would cause our every day to be shaped by these realities. Oh, we plead with you. Help us to become an Isaiah 35 people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. A reading of the nativity scenes there in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. There's a lot there to be sure, and no doubt, no few of us are very familiar with quite a bit of it, if not even all of it. But it's easy to miss uh, some, of, some, some major themes that, you, that, that are there when you just read the pieces in isolation from one another. Sometimes you have to see the whole the whole of the forest to actually understand even what the trees are. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I mean by that. Let me, let me take you on a little tour 
through the, that first nativity, that first Christmas, and perhaps maybe you might, might pick up on this. So in Luke 1, I'm uh, going to do four quick readings in the Gospel of Luke, and then we're going to zip on over to Matthew after that. But in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, here are the words from the angel to old Zechariah. Luke 1, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He's referring to John, John the Baptist, who was coming. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And then uh, skipping over to verses 41 to 44, we have uh, the aged Elizabeth speaking to Mary. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Skipping down just a little bit to verse 46, Mary's response to all this is, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, skipping over to Luke 2, the uh, angel... Uh, pronouncement, announcement to the shepherds over the field of Bethlehem, uh, Luke 2, starting in verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And not to leave the gospel of Matthew out, uh, going back there to Matthew 2, verses 9 through 10, the response of the Magi to what they have heard, seen, encountered Matthew 2, verses 9 through 10, after listening to the king, that's Herod, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Did you get the theme? Did you pick up on it? What was it? Come on. Joy. Right. As a consequence of joy that is felt down deep within, rejoicing erupts. From within that heart. And you see that theme again and again and again because of what is happening and who is coming. This one who is said to be great, who will be Christ, who is the Lord, the long awaited Savior, the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for, whose reign uh, is, is so great, so grandiose, who's such a royal figure that representatives of the nations will be drawn to him by movements in the heavens. Yeah, that's who we're talking about here. And so there is this joy because of what is happening and who is coming. Well, that's who Isaiah is writing about in Isaiah 35. 700 years before his arrival, Isaiah is speaking of this very one that we have just read quickly there in Luke and, and Matthew. And his desire for the reader, for, for then his hearer, was simply, simply, profoundly to grasp this. The Lord is coming. His people should rejoice. The Lord is coming. His people should rejoice. Now, that was true in looking forward towards his first coming, and it is still equally true now today as we look forward towards his next coming, his second coming. The Lord is coming, his people, to the degree that we grasp what that means. The Lord is coming, his people should rejoice. 
And again, that's not about happiness. And that's not about the most wonderful time of the year. And, and I'm not, okay, I've already talked about that. It's about joy. But that raises some questions. Questions such as, well, what is joy? What is that? What are you talking about? That's the first point in the outline. You can see it there in, in your, your bulletin. The second thing is not just uh, what, what is it, but how is it? How is joy possible? And then the third thing, following up from that, is what does it do? What are its effects? What, is it, what are its fruits? So what is it? Why is it? How is it? Or what does it do? Where does it go? Let's look at these in, in turn. This is really significant. What does this mean? This would be what we'll call an explanation of what the Bible means, what the Bible means when it speaks of joy. Now, you have to begin with this. That has nothing to do with our circumstances. You have to just take circumstances off the, the table when you're talking about what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of joy. It is not necessarily, though it can involve, it is not necessarily involve our emotions, though it can. It has much more due to whether a quality, a condition of the heart, even amidst suffering, even amidst pain, a thrill of hope in the midst of weariness. Saying of that earlier, that's joy. That's joy. A deep well of gladness. That's joy. And again, it has nothing, it's, it's not, not dictated by circumstance. It is not real tied to. In fact, it can run right against the grain of our the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to take those in reverse. First, the ugly. So joy is, is not conditioned upon the conflicts in our lives the adversity that we face, or the deprivation of whatever that we're suffering. Joy is not determined, dictated by that, not biblically speaking, nor the bad. Joy does not come from uh, the pursuit of the lusts of our flesh or the desires of sin. That's not where you're going to find joy. So the ugly, the bad, not even the good. Joy does not hinge on our accomplishments. It does not hinge on our successes. It does not hinge on what gifts you are able to give this season or to receive or the Pinterest-worthy moment or the Hallmark holiday special-worthy experience that you will have or not this holiday season. It has nothing to do with the ugly, the bad, or the good, because it has, is not have to do with our circumstance. It is outside of our circumstances, which is why Paul, as Stephen read earlier from Philippians 4, can say from prison to those believers in the first century, rejoice in the Lord always. How can he say that and not be insane? Because this joy is tied to one who does not change. Jesus. It's joy connected to him. It's why Paul not only can write such words from prison, but earlier in his ministry, he can write to the church in Thessalonica, a church that was undergoing intense persecution. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, look it up. Two words, rejoice always. How can he say that with a straight face? 
because joy is not connected to your circumstances. That deep well of gladness, that thrill of hope in the midst of weariness is not connected to our circumstances. It is outside of our circumstances. It is rooted in Christ. It is supplied day by day by day by Christ through his spirit. Joy is part of the fruit of the spirit. Look that up, Galatians 5. As we grow in Christ-likeness as disciples of Jesus over time, slowly but surely, he makes us increasingly more and more joyful. Why? Because he's making us more and more like himself. Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, was the most joyful person this world has ever seen. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it. And his intent is to make us like him. People of joy. Joy is rooted in Jesus. It is supplied by Jesus. And it is so much more than happiness. Let's go back to that nativity scene and consider the, the, the characters, the cast of characters, all right? Let's think about what they went through and what they were experiencing in the moment. Zechariah is struck dumb for his unbelief. Uh, Elizabeth, we're not told this, but you can only, you have to intuit it, has to be wondering, who's going to raise my infant son, given how old I am? Mary is an unwed mother in a culture that would have shamed her surely for this situation. She's got to be wondering, what are people going to say? What is Joseph going to say? The shepherds, yeah, they're the first heralds, the first evangelists. They're still shepherds. After the whole thing's over, the party's done, they're still shepherds. They're still societal outcasts and rejects. Nobody wants to listen to them or have anything to do with them. Has that changed? No. The magi, yes, they have followed the star. They are now in the blast radius of Herod's fury. What do these people have? joy, not happiness, joy. They have something anchored, tethered, down deep, roots that cannot be touched by the frost, joy, joy that sustains, joy that endures. Truly, we can say, and you don't have to be a slick-haired, shiny-mouthed TV preacher to say, God desires for you to be joyful. There's truth in that statement if you understand what joy means. In that sense, in the biblical sense, we can say absolutely God desires for his people to be joyful, which begs a question. Are you? Are you? If not, why not? I mean, there's some challenging questions that we all have to look in the mirror. I do, you do, we all do. If we're miserable people, continue. I'm not just talking about, you know, moment by, like a bad day, one bad day. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a theme. If people could hardly describe you as a joyful person, I, you have to ask, where are your roots? What are you seeing? Joy in this world, is that's an oxymoron because it is fleeting 
It is all, joy in this world is always fleeting. It is always flimsy. It has no more strength to it than the tinsel on your tree. Where is your joy? Where is your joy? My friends, back to Isaiah's word to us. The Lord is coming. His people should rejoice. The Lord is coming. His people should rejoice. Okay, that's the explanation of what joy means, what is, what that is, unpacking that. Now, let's move on to the second point, and that would be exploring it just a little bit. So, we're from explanation now to exploration. So, we've talked about what it is. Let's move to why it is. How can it be? How can it be? So, back to, and finally now to Isaiah. We've really kind of been talking around this. But Isaiah 35, verse 4, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The God will come. Your God will come. Now skip down to verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The people will come. His people will come. The ransom and the redeemed of the Lord will come with singing, with joy. Why? Because God, their God, will come. Those two things are inextricably tied together. The people come with joy because God is coming. Uh, God is, is coming. There's two parts to this. What is coming and who is coming? What is coming and who is coming? What is coming is, at, at the very least, here in Isaiah 35, what we could call a return from exile. A return from exile. Verses 1 and 2, you, you can hear the, the imagery. Hear the imagery. Well, yeah, sure. See it, hear it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly with and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Isaiah is projecting out to a time in the future when the people will have endured a hor- yet another exile and yet an- now another exodus, a return from exile. But here's the thing. The imagery that he's using here, the richness and depth of the imagery far outstrips the reality of history, which can only mean, if he's speaking truthfully, which he is, that experience has to be pointing to something beyond it, to another return from exile, another exodus that was yet to come, a renewal of all things, of all things things. The natural order, you can see it referred to here in Isaiah 35, the natural order, the transformation of the desert wilderness into a garden. It's not exaggerating. It's not just meant to be, oh, these are cool metaphors. I mean, this is something he's saying is coming. The natural order, the fall being reversed, undone, all that is sad coming untrue. Uh, The societal order, a deliverance from oppression, and the establishment of justice upon the whole of this earth. That's alluded to here as, as well. As you move down through uh, verses 3 and 4. Or not just that, but our physical bodies, the restoration of, of health and, and healing. You can see there in verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So, 
the natural order, the societal order, our physical state, our spiritual state. Isaiah alludes to that here as well, verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there. Think of what he has to be speaking of. And this shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and shall obtain gladness and joy with sorrow and sighing shall and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You, you, you hear the richness, the wonder, the, the, this protected path, this assured arrival, this sweet homecoming, this never-ending, everlasting, ever-increasing, deepening joy that he's referring to here. That's what's coming. Joy to the world is a consequence of that. That because of what is coming. And what is coming is coming because of who is coming. And Isaiah is speaking of that here as, as well. These things described there, the, the restoration of the natural order and the, um, of, of, the, of the societal order and the physical state and the spiritual state, all those things are marks of what happens when God shows up. Those are marks of what happens when, when God comes which takes us then to Jesus and Jesus' ministry when he comes and the taste of all this when the king arrives and the kingdom is inaugurated and, it's, it, and, and dawn begins to break upon that dark, dark morning. Turn with me to um, Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is, this is why the people were so amazed by Jesus' ministry. It's more than what you might think. When Jesus, Matthew 11, starting in verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, as a contrast, sort of in tension with this, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? His expectations are in conflict with what's going on. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Now tell me if you don't hear echoes of Isaiah 35 here. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The people were not only amazed by Jesus' miracles, they were also amazed by the implication, the message of those miracles. You see, Jesus' ministry is tied to his identity. Or think about it this way. Here's an if-then statement for you. If when Jesus shows up, he starts doing the things that Isaiah said would take place when God comes... Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what is happening if these things are happening when he arrives? Well, there's only one answer to that. He's the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah said was, was going to happen. This is cause for joy, joy to the world because of this return that's, that has come and is coming from exile, the renewal of all things, what is coming and, and who is coming. So that's what, Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. And if you want to truncate it, that's a bad word, compress it. If you want to compress it, 
um, with a shorthand by saying Jesus is the reason for the season. That's fine as long as you know what a big, big statement that is and how much you have compressed into that sentence. A lot. A whole lot. A cosmic transformation and one that will take place in each and one of, every one of our own lives. That means, okay, it's it, the, the gatherings, the galas, the gifts, the festivities, the feasts, all of that is great so long as we understand that those are but the periphery of what this season is. I mean, I don't know how many holiday specials I've seen, you've seen, and we will suffer through that say Christmas is about giving. Christmas is about babies. Christmas is about friendship. Christmas is about family. I'm not saying there's something wrong with babies or family or friends. or get, That's not the point. The point is that's on the outside. The periphery, all that, the celebration, the gatherings, all that is meant to be fueled by this red-hot molten core, this message. The Lord is coming. His people should rejoice. May that fuel any and everything we are about this season, which takes us into the last and the shortest of the points. Uh, not only in an explanation of what joy is, unpacking of that, and an exploration of, of how it can be, but now what it brings, an expectation. What are the fruits, the, the, I'll put it this way, the consequences of joy, the results of joy that should be there in our lives? Well, for starters, in us, joy does something to us, to the degree that it's there within us. Look at verses 3 through 4 in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Now, that's not just Isaiah's trying to fill papyrus, and there's no connection, no context to that. That comes as a consequence of what he has just said before. It's connected to the good news of what he has just said before, of the undoing of the fall, of all the sad things coming untrue. So because of verses 1 and 2 and the certainty and surety of that, therein be strong, strengthen the weak knees, lift up those, those hands. We have nothing ultimately to fear. Verse Two, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Of what do we honestly? I mean, I, I'm a fearful man, but what do I have to be afraid of? Really? Given these things. So there, there, there's a fruit of joy that should be taking place in us, in our own lives. But equally so... There should also be joy flowing through us to the people around us. Something that is seen, something that is witnessed, as surely as glow of candles in, in a dark, dark place. Joy should stand out, not, not for the sake of standing out, but it's just what it does. Just what it does in a world such as this. It's not, it's not, I'll be honest, it's not, 
explicit here. It's implied here in Isaiah 35 because, you know, you really can't, um, you can't keep this under wraps, the kind of thing that Isaiah is speaking of. It is explicit other places in Isaiah. It certainly is, this explosion, this effulgence of, of joy. 52, Isaiah 52, verse 8. I'm just going to hit three places real quickly. Isaiah 52, verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. We're going backwards in Isaiah to Isaiah 49, verse 13. You get the, the cosmic sense of this. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, in the singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We're going way back to chapter 25. Chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Because of what is coming, because of who is coming, this joy is contagious. My favorite Christmas special is from the Andy Griffith Show. It was the only one that they did with any Christmas theme to it. I don't know. Maybe you're, it was actually the first season, believe it or not. It's, here, I'll just give you a, a thumbnail sketch of it. There are a lot of plot spoilers, so if you don't want to hear it, plug your ears. Um, it's Christmas Eve. Andy and Barney are making plans. Uh, Aunt B's going to, of course, supply the food. Who else? Barney's going to play Santa. Who else? The prisoners are going to get a reprieve and be sent home. Uh, Christmas vacation is the idea. But then old Ben Weaver shows up, and he has Sam Muggins in tow. Now, Ben runs a department store, and he's caught Sam moonshining. And Ben says, that's cutting into my, uh, my, my, my business. And so he demands, lock him up, Sheriff. That's my best Ben Weaver imitation. Lock him up, Sheriff. Ben demands, Andy's stuck. Letter of the law, he has to do what Ben is saying. But here's the rub. Sam is a family man. He's got a wife and two small children. It's Christmas. Andy can't handle this. He can't stomach this. What is he going to do? Well, of course, Andy Griffith being Andy Griffith, or Sheriff Taylor being Sheriff Taylor, comes up with the plan. The plan is he arrests Sam's family, wife and small children, puts them in the cell with Sam, with all the accoutrements of the holiday. Now, Ben Weaver can't handle this, but Andy won't, won't have any, any of his protests. And then over time, over the next several scenes, a strange thing begins to happen. Old Ben Weaver starts committing petty crimes that keep bringing him to the jail, to the courthouse. He steals a public bench. He rips up a parking ticket that Barney wrote him right in his face. He um, serves the peace. And finally, Andy, just in exasperation, says to him, if I didn't know better, I think you were trying to get yourself thrown in jail. To which Ben Weaver says, why would I do that? And then it hits Andy. Yeah, Ben, why would you? 
And what's happened is, in the magic of Mayberry, the old man has softened. The old man has softened, and so they go to the store, he packs a few things, he brings them to the jail, and he unloads his suitcase and everything in there. It's all gifts for the people back of the jailhouse. Christmas has come to even old Ben Weaver. And the reason that I bring this up is going back to the point about being the, fact, the reality that joy is contagious. Real, gospel-oriented joy that that show just, you know, captures in, in, in a way, in a way, is contagious. Our calling this season is to tell people who Jesus is what he has done for us, and the difference that that has made in our lives. To simply say what we can to where people are, okay? What we can to where people are and leave the results in the Lord's hands. What we can to where they are and leave the results in his hands. Because again, the Lord is coming. His people should rejoice. Advent, this season, is all about anticipation, right? It's all about waiting. It's all about longing. I know a few of you I know have been working through devotional guides over this Advent season, and, and, and still I was going to talk to somebody this morning about one. And uh, you know, typically those are, are numbered 1 through 25, and as your bookmark moves from left to right, there's this sense of almost like a countdown, like you're getting, because you are, you're getting closer and closer and closer. To, to the big day. Well, Advent calendars are like that, right? Uh, same, same, a sense of building uh, of anticipation and, and longing. Quick history on the Advent calendar, where this came from. came from the German people. Uh, back, uh, well, going back the roots of, of the tradition, we don't know how long, how far back, but the, clearly we know that uh, in that part of the world for centuries, part of the celebration was chalk marks uh, as the days went by in the Advent season on the door frames or on the door. And then over time, that there, were, there were candles maybe added, not on the doors, but, but candles that, that were lit over the course of the countdown in the Advent season. Well, there was a guy by the name of Gerald Lang who was the, who was the one who created the first written Advent calendar back in 1908. And it came from this idea where his mother, when he was a little boy, baked cookies and attached them to a box lid. Now, I don't know how all this worked, but there were 24 of them, and little, little Gerald, Gerald Lang was given permission by his mom. Every day he was allowed to eat one of those cookies for 24 days, getting closer, getting closer, getting closer, which, of course, builds this sense of anticipation and excitement within any kid, maybe even a big kid, too. Now, Advent calendars today, you go out to Target, Walmart, whatever, Lego, not exactly capturing the original purpose and theme of the tradition, but you, you get the idea. You get the idea. There's a sense of building, building an anticipation and longing, almost as much or maybe even more, yeah, more so to the degree we understand it, is like mission control before a big space launch, right? And the countdown there because of all that's at stake the importance of the event and what's gone into it and the longing for it. Well, all those things are but pointers to the wonder 
and longing and need we have of this one that Isaiah is speaking of here in Isaiah 35. The Lord is coming. Oh, may we rejoice. May we rejoice, for he is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to understand more of what it means to say the Lord is coming. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of uh, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, is coming. The exile has and will end. All things renewed fully and finally, including even us. Rejoice is the call, the invitation. Oh, would you help us hear this? Would you please, please help us hear it? We pray this in your name. Amen.